testify to that, to that fact. Men on the average have larger windpipes and branching bronchi and 30% greater lung capacity taken as a percent of their respective body weights. Men also have relatively larger hearts and can pump a larger volume of blood. Males have 10% higher red blood cell counts, higher hemoglobin readings, and consequently higher oxygen-carrying capacity. They have higher circulating clotting factors. Their rapid clotting and higher basal metabolic rate leads to more rapid healing of wounds and bruises. Women on the average have more stored and circulating white blood cells. They produce more antibodies faster and thus have a more rapid and effective response to infectious invaders. They will develop fewer infectious diseases and succumb to them for shorter periods of time. Ethologists argue that for females caring for multiple offspring and interacting with other females and their offspring in social groups where communicable diseases can spread rapidly this is a particularly advantageous trait. Males who have been historically less involved in these activities, but more involved in hunting, protection, building, war, etc., are more in need of a good wound healing program. And I could go on and on and on, as others have said earlier today, because I haven't even touched the peripheral nervous system. I haven't even talked about the brain and the differences there, the differences in stress management. And I've cited all this because I think it's important for us to understand that there are more biological differences between men and women than just our reproductive organs. Biological differences go beyond reproduction. And these biological distinctions determine, help determine the role that each gender is intended to play. What can we observe about male and female roles and how biology has impacted them? Anthropologists have studied some 250 cultures across the world, and they have come up with some fairly universal observations. These are things that are true regardless of where men and women live across the planet, regardless of what their religious background is, whatever their socioeconomic status might be, etc., etc. These are some universal truisms. Males are almost always the rule makers, the hunters, the builders, the fashioners of weapons, workers in metal, wood, or stone. And we can see all the reasons why by the facts that I just stated. They're built for these things. Women, primary caregivers, and mostly involved in child-rearing, their activities center on maintenance and care of home and family. They are more often involved in making pottery, baskets, clothes, blankets, etc. They gather food, preserve and prepare food, obtain and carry firewood and water. They collect and grind grain. And we don't even need to look at humans. We could extend this to mammals and see some of the same traits coming out, differences between roles in male and female. And all this comes out of design, what the human body has designed. And then we turn back to Scripture, and we consider the roles that God has given to men and women. What does He tell men? He tells them to love like Jesus, to lead in the home and the church to provide for their household, to bring their children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting, to be sober-minded, to be reverent, to be sound in faith, in love, in patience. And we could go on. 
What does he say to women? He says to be submissive like the church, to manage the household, to nurture and rear godly children, to focus your attention on inward rather than outward adornment, to be reverent, to be discreet, to be chaste and good. And when you look at what the Lord has intended for men and women, and you compare that with what anthropologists have observed in male-female interaction, the globe across, you see an amazing amount of overlap. And that's not by mistake. This is a part of our design, and our design has led to our various roles. Transgenderism flows against the grain of how God created us and with the roles our biology has been designed to support. But what we see in transgenderism and what we're going to note a little bit later on in homosexuality is that feelings transcend biology. Dr. Phil McHugh is a 40-year professor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins Medical School. That's a pretty good hospital from what I understand. He was 26 years the psychiatrist-in-chief of that hospital. He is an expert, if ever an expert could be found, on this topic. He has studied transgendered people for a number of decades. He talks about in one of his articles about how Johns Hopkins was on the cutting edge of sex change operations in the 1970s, but they abandoned it in the early 1980s because they discovered, and other studies have verified this, that these sex change operations were not helping the patients. Dr. McHugh believes that transgenderism is a psychological matter and not a biological matter. Transgenderism, in his expert opinion, results from conflicts over the prospects, expectations, and roles that they sense are attached to their given sex. They presume that sex reassignment will ease or resolve them. You see, transgenderism is rooted in how one feels as opposed to biology. Instead of changing your feelings, you must change your body. How you feel is who you are, and there is no escape from it. Your only choice is to alter your body. That's the only choice that they are given by our modern culture. As we turn to homosexuality... I want to, once again, offer just a couple of clarifications. If you've done any research on what the idea is coming out about including homosexuals in the Christian community have been over the last few years, one thing that you will notice in that research is a lot of their arguments hinge on how Greek words are defined. I think that that is a notable characteristic of their idea. It hinges on how a particular word is defined. So bear that in mind if you do your own investigation. So I feel it's necessary as I talk about this, not in great detail, but just a little bit, at times I'm going to feel it necessary to talk about some of these words and give you some definitions that I think you will find helpful. Let's begin in the book of Jude, verse number 7. Over in Jude 7, Jude is warning his readers about encroaching false teaching and false teachers. He's describing them in some very vivid details. 
He says in verse number 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now Jude is simply commenting on something we could read for ourselves in Genesis chapter 19. But I think Jude's commentary here is especially pertinent. Because understanding how Jude views what took place in Genesis 19, an inspired writer of the New Testament, should help inform us. It should give us some idea of how we should view this particular item, homosexuality. He says about Sodom and Gomorrah that they had given themselves over to sexual immorality. This is one of those phrases in the English which only has a single Greek word. And it comes to us from the Greek word porneia, which the verb for that word is pornuo. All this means, all sexual immorality means, is unlawful sexual intercourse. It's intercourse that takes place outside the bonds of marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 4, the writer of Hebrews says that marriage is honorable, honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators, which is the other word for sexually immoral people, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. If fornication is a sin, and unquestionably it is, if fornication, sexual immorality, pornea, pornuo, however you want to say it, if this is a sin, and this is sex outside of marriage, wouldn't that equally apply to either heterosexual or homosexual relations outside of marriage? I think it must. It must. Jude says concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, they had given themselves over to sexual immorality. He goes on to comment that they pursued strange flesh. That's how the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard translate that particular word. The, the Young's literal translation says other flesh. Those of you that are reading from the ESV, that is translated unnatural desire. And I think that we have here an instance of dynamic equivalence when it comes to the English Standard Version. That's not an exact literal translation of the word. Other flesh is closest to the idea that Jude originally expresses. So they've given themselves over to sexual immorality and they have pursued strange or other flesh. What does he mean by strange flesh? Well, that's the real debate. And even among evangelical commentators, you're going to find a variety of answers to this. And they get pretty wild. One of them, I think, is worth noting because I've seen it on enough homosexual apologia websites that it's worth mentioning. A lot of people interpret that these men were lusting for angels. That the angels are the other flesh or the strange flesh. Now I don't see how Genesis 19 supports this particular interpretation. If you think back to Genesis chapter 19 verses 2 and 3, you'll remember that when the angels came to Lot, they wanted to stay in the open square, but Lot said no. And why would Lot say no to that? Because he was anticipating what would happen to them should they stay in the open square. If Lot had known that they were angels, do you think he would have been very concerned about their welfare? 
He probably would have concluded that they could handle business. But he was concerned about their welfare. He insisted that they come home with him. And so they did. When the men of Sodom and Gomorrah come to Lot in verse number 5, who do they ask for? Do they ask for the angels who came to you? No. Give us the men who have come to you. Give us the men who have come to you. They understood these angels to be men. This is what they wanted. The strange flesh that they were after was something that God had not allowed men to have. This would be fornication. This would be sexual immorality. And as Jude says, they pursued sexual immorality and pursued other flesh. And the other flesh here I would understand to be intercourse with those of the same gender. So I believe that Sodom and Gomorrah do cast homosexuality in a sinful light. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 9. Parents, I'm doing my best to be as diplomatic on all this as possible. And I hope you'll bear with me as we talk about this verse. I'm going to try and be as... I'm going to be careful. I'll just leave it at that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9. Paul asked, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, there's that word porneia, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the sexually immoral are placed side by side with the idolater, reminiscent of what John was talking about in his lesson this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. How does God view idolatry? Well, he views it as spiritual harlotry, spiritual adultery, right next to sexual immorality. Now, I think it's important to note that there is no single word, no single word in the Greek language for homosexual. They have a variety of words that describe this particular behavior. And I don't think that that's anything unusual. There's not a single word in Eskimo for snow. But I don't think they're unfamiliar with the concept. They've got multiple words to describe this because this is very much a part of the world that they live in. And they've got multiple words to describe it. So the fact that we have no single word to describe this is not that unusual. Paul uses two different words here. That's why in the New King James he talks about homosexuals and sodomites. The word homosexual comes to us from the Greek word malakos. The New American Standard translates that as effeminate. But the word really means the passive partner in a same-sex relationship. The passive partner in a same-sex relationship, and that's as far as I'm going to go. The word sodomite comes from the Greek word arsenikoites. It's the two Greek words put together for male and bed. Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich define this in their lexicon as the dominant partner in a same-sex relationship. 
This is why in the English Standard Version, those of you who are reading from that, combine the two. There's not two separate words in the English Standard. We've got a little bit of dynamic equivalence going on once again. They just put the two together and they talk about men who practice homosexuality. The New English Translation renders it thus. Passive homosexual partners and practicing homosexuals. What I take away from this is that Paul is talking about two people on two different sides involved in a relationship. Two men that practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's his message. This is a sin that endangers the soul should it go unforgiven. One final passage, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Jesus here is talking about marriage. And I think it is quite critical that we notice that this marriage relationship has been created to be enjoyed between men and women. Jesus takes us clear back to our creation. As I noticed in my earlier point concerning transgenderism, verse number 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God has joined male and female together. So the question is, does God join man and man or woman and woman together? We have no reason to believe that based upon what Jesus says. Man may join such together. But we have no reason to believe that God recognizes such a marital union. Not scripturally speaking. We have no basis for that in scripture. Jesus is explicit that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now one of the arguments that's often presented in opposition to this interpretation is, well, this was the first century and people would not accept a teaching on homosexual marriage in the first century. I have to admit that this argument is incredibly incoherent to me. Because in the Greek and Roman world, you have a widespread acceptance of homosexual relationships. The Greeks basically just got married to kind of keep the race going. But the highest relationship in the Greek mind, the one that the philosophers and the poets and the playwrights celebrated, was the friendship, the love between a man and a man. This is what they thought was the greatest relationship of all. So I don't see this as a problem with the message. If this message had gone past the confines of Palestine to the greater Greek and Roman world, I know it would have found receptive ears. It would have been accepted. So I reject this idea that humankind has evolved to the point where this is now perfectly acceptable. That makes no sense to me. And it reminds me of a warning that the writer of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you quote the next part? Do not be carried about by strange doctrines. There's going to be all kinds of new ideas that come out. But don't forget, Jesus Christ has not changed. God's will has not changed. It is established. It is resolute. And we have no reason to believe that we have reached some pinnacle of evolution that now it's perfectly okay. 
I want to return now to a thought that I touched on earlier that feelings trump biology. I, I cited to you that statement by Dr. McHugh from formerly of the Johns Hopkins Medical School. He views transgenders coming to this point through conflicts over the prospects, expectations, and roles that they sense are attached to their given sex. They presume that sex reassignment will ease or resolve them. So very much in the transgender community, there is this idea that feelings are greater than biology and that feelings should be followed. That feelings are determinant. And to not follow your feelings is to act in conflict with yourself. Now I'd like to read to you from the American Psychological Association a quote that I pulled off of their website just a couple of weeks ago in their flyer pamphlet on homosexuality. They write this, and I want everyone to listen to this very, very closely. Quote, There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. End quote. Now to me, that's quite a statement. Because that flies in the face of the prevailing winds of the day. The conventional wisdom is people are born homosexual. It's genetic. I mean, this is repeated over and over and over again. And my friends, it is a lie. No one knows. They've done a lot of research and no one knows why. The American Psychological Association is... I mean, the most humanist of humanist organizations out there. And they're saying to us, we don't know why someone comes to their particular sexual orientation. There is no conclusive study. So don't buy in to the propaganda, because that's what it is. It is propaganda. There is nothing that would lead us to believe that there is some genetic link in all this. I'm not saying that we should rule that out in the future. I'm just saying we have no reason to believe it right now. As John was talking about yesterday, we need to follow the evidence where it leads. We need to love the truth. And this is the truth. This is what we have. The other thing I want to pull out here, and I emphasize this, it's in the last sentence. Did you notice that last sentence? That homosexuals experience little or no sense of choice. Once again, we have this idea of feelings, of senses. 
As I read this quotation a couple of weeks ago, it led me to conclude that the best way to spend the last few minutes of this lesson was to talk about two ideas, desire and determinism. I think you probably all can conclude what desire is. Determinism I'll define for you here in just a moment. Let's talk about desire first. The scriptures resoundingly agree that homosexual, homosexuality is a feeling or what the New Testament would call a desire of the flesh. Now I'm going to lump transgenderism into this because quite frankly we just don't have any specific passages relating to it. But we have testimony from experts that tell us that this is all about a sense, a feeling. So I think we can lump this, them in and say that both of these conditions are rooted in desire. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says that fornication, sexual immorality, and adultery come out of the heart. It is something that's down deep inside man. Jeremy prayed in his prayer today that we might that God would help us to dig down in those deep recesses and, and pull all that stuff out. Paraphrasing there, Jeremy, much less eloquently than you did in your prayer, but that's the idea that I took from it. In James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, James tells us how we come to sin. He says it begins with desire, temptation preys upon desire, Desire conceives and it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full growth, brings forth death. That's the process. It all begins with desire. Temptation preys upon desire, but when do we get in trouble? Well, we get in trouble at that point past temptation when desire conceives. Now, what does James mean by that? What does he mean by when desire conceives? Well, I believe that this is when we move past desire and temptation to what I will just call mental preoccupation or fixation. Fantasizing about things. I really like an illustration that Roger Wanasen used a few years ago. He talked about how Temptation is like somebody writing up on a blank chalkboard. The chalkboard's your mind, and somebody just writes this word up on the chalkboard. And Roger says, what we need to do is just take an eraser and erase that right off the board. In other words, don't give in. Temptation is facing you. You need to resist. Put it out of your mind. Gain control over it. Desire conceives when we move past that point, when we start looking at that word. We fixate on it. We become preoccupied with it. We're thinking about it, fantasizing about it. That's when desire conceives. And that is when sin comes forth. Among the seven things that are abominable to the Lord is a heart that devises wicked plans. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 18. In Micah chapter 2, verse 1, the prophet laments, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it. Here we have people who are concocting evil plans in their hearts. You see, desire and temptation have now moved to desire conceiving. They're laying on their beds at night. They're thinking about these things. How can I pull this off? And this is something that God hates. Why is that? Because this is the seed out of which all these ugly things come. Out of the heart proceeds 
all these things. In Matthew chapter 5, verse number 28, Jesus says that to look on a woman and to lust for her, and I would take lust there to mean something like fantasizing about her, preoccupied, thinking about her, and thinking about her in ways that would be completely inappropriate for someone we're not married to. That's to commit adultery with her. This is when desire conceives and gives birth to sin. To look on a woman, though, and resist that temptation, to take the eraser out, wipe it away, is to avoid adultery. Desire has not conceived. Now what does this have to do with homosexuality and transgenderism? Brethren, I want you for a moment to push away the emotion, to push away the reactions. Let's just for a moment reason our way through something. We see in James that desire followed by temptation followed by desire conceiving is when we get into trouble, that third step. So let me ask you a question. I'm not asking for anyone to answer. I just want you to think about it. Is it possible for a Christian to be attracted to someone of the same biological sex and still be a Christian? To be confronted with temptation, but to resist temptation? Is it possible to have that desire, to have that attraction, but to choose not to act upon it, to walk away from it? Is that possible? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer has to be yes. Otherwise, I don't know what to do with James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 on this topic. Let's apply this to a person, a man who's trapped, feels like he's trapped inside a woman's body. Or vice versa. Can they have that feeling? Can they have that feeling but choose not to act upon it? Choose not to fixate upon it? Choose not to be preoccupied with it? Take the eraser out and just take it off the chalkboard. Is it possible for them to be a follower of Jesus Christ? My answer to that question is yes. I don't know what else to do with James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. And my brethren, in the toxic climate that we live in today, in this terribly toxic climate, these people need our help. They need our compassion because they are trying to do something incredibly brave. The true definition of courage and bravery is to walk away, to make the choice to not follow after desire and to follow after the Lord. Brethren, these people need our prayers. They need our hugs. They need our friendship. They need everything that we can possibly give them to support them. So let's turn now to determinism. What's determinism? Determinism is a philosophy that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the human will. It's a fancy way of basically saying that no matter how we act, things are going to turn out a certain way. That I have no choice in anything. It implies that there is no free will. It implies that no one can be held morally responsible for their actions. Among the ancients, this was known as fate. I talked about fate last night with regards to the mystery religions. This idea that Whatever is going to happen in the future is going to happen regardless of what choice I make right now. That's determinism. We fight determinism when we talk about Calvinism. Calvinism is determinism, theology, gone amok. 
It's this idea that no matter what I do, I am a reprobate. I can never choose to follow God of my own will. So God chooses me. He infuses me with the Holy Spirit. He gives me the power to make the choice because I can't make the choice for myself. That is theological determinism. We fight determinism among the atheist evolutionists who say, well, here you are. You're just the result of genes that are outside your control. And the ardent atheistic evolutionists, and there are some exceptions, but the ardent ones, the ones who truly believe in this, believe in there is no such thing as free will. There is no such thing as choice. You are who you are and you cannot change. I bring this up because this is what we are being told when it comes to the issues of homosexuality and transgenderism. Homosexuals say, I am who I am and I cannot change. That is determinism. And this determinism stretches to the transgender community. There's this innateness argument that the transgender will use, that transgenderism is inborn and unchangeable. I've been born with these feelings, they cannot be changed, therefore I must act upon them. That is determinism. So here we have this idea, this thing that we see in theology, we see it in evolution, we see it in philosophy. And it's one of the great lies of our time. Because the Bible does not uphold determinism. The great lie is that we just want people to be happy. We just want people to experience love. We just want people to be free to do what they choose. But it reminds me of what Peter warns about in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. These people are promised liberty by slaves of corruption. People who are enslaved to sin are making these promises to them, saying, you're going to have a happy life. You're going to have a fulfilled life. You're going to have everything you want if you just follow your feelings. And that is the great lie. Is the one who offers freedom... If the one who offers freedom is enslaved, can they truly offer freedom? The Bible is at odds with determinism. What did God say to Cain as he contemplated murdering his brother? He said, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And he was saying that to a man who did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a man for whom Jesus would die much, much, much later, down in the future. God is telling Cain, you do not have to act upon your desire. Sin can be defeated by righteousness. You do not have to act upon your desires. James says in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If this was not possible, why would James tell us to do it? If it was not possible for us to resist temptation, to flee from temptation, why would James tell us to do it? Because it's just a falsehood. There must be something to it. Paul says that God has provided a way of escape out of every temptation. That promise is good for the believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We've got to find that way of escape. God has given us the freedom to choose. Yes, we have weaknesses, 
But we do not have to act upon our desires. We do not have to. So as I draw this to a close, for those of you here who are struggling with how to handle this issue in your personal life, among family members, neighbors, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me remind you of a couple things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, Paul says that love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. To tell someone that they are living in a way that is at odds with God's will, that is the epitome of love. Because love does not rejoice in iniquity, love rejoices in the truth. Now love is kind, love does not behave itself rudely, and as Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 verse number 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. We often accentuate that last part, knowing that we must prepare an answer, but that first part's critical. Be gracious with your words. Have goodwill. Want the best for this person. Speak the truth, but speak it with love. Leave the demonization. Leave the polemical commentary. Leave the straw men and the ad hominems to the guys at Fox News and MSNBC because they're both garbage. Leave all that to people like that. You speak the truth in love. Speak it with grace. Be the people of God and know how you ought to respond. And especially if you know that you have brothers and sisters that are struggling with this same-sex attraction or sense of transgenderism, if you know these people, they need your help now more than ever. For the church, I'd like to remind you of the example of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 20. You'll remember that Thyatira had been influenced by a false prophetess that's called Jezebel. I assume that that's a pseudonym. I don't know why anybody would go by the name Jezebel, unless maybe they were lifted up with pride and just wanted to be that way. Anyways, that's not really relevant. Jezebel was practicing some syncretism. We heard that word earlier this morning. She was trying to blend sexual immorality and idolatry in with Christianity. There does seem to be some indication that perhaps Gnosticism was tied up in all this as well. Brethren, this is, these are the days of Jezebel. There are people that are seeking to blend Christianity and sexual immorality. Read the warnings to Thyatira. Because they are dire. They are dire warnings. Finally, if you are sitting in this room tonight or listening to my voice and you are one of those people that's struggling with same-sex attraction or that feeling of transgenderism, I want you to know that you are not alone. There are Christians, I know of Christians, that are fighting this daily battle against this and they're winning they are winning remember my friends that God is neither the author of confusion nor is he the author of temptation 
Your feelings do not determine your destiny. Your choices determine your destiny. You are not alone. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Other Christians are facing homosexuality and transgenderism, and they are overcoming. And don't forget the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. I read verses 9 and 10. The warning that such people would not inherit the kingdom of God, but verse 11 is the most important. And such were some of you. You can change. And Paul was talking to people who had changed. And they had changed because they had become a part of the kingdom of God. They had the Spirit dwelling in them now. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 13, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We can. There is hope. You have brethren who love you. We want to help you. Don't buy in to all the things that are being said. Because there's hope for you. And thank Jesus Christ, there is hope for us all.